what is happening, all of my sisters and all my brothers from other mothers. Welcome to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, and this is episode 222. Yes, 222. We're putting that one in the can today, and uh, for those who may be watching, you'll see that I am dressed in my red hoodie. Uh, which means on Star Trek, I'm going down to the surface of the planet and I'm not coming back because the dudes in red, they always just kind of get stuck on the planet. They don't come back. That's what happens when you dress red. So I'm dressing red. Or I'm dressing red because it's the holiday season. Christmas is now in full swing. We just uh, celebrated the first Sunday of Advent. And so all the more, I'm doubling down on going red. So uh, that's what I'm wearing today. But for those listening, you're like, why is he telling us this attire? I don't know. It's because right now I'm staring into a camera and it makes me think about video. That's why I do what I do. But that's not why we're here. In fact, we are here, as always, to be reminded of the fact that we live in a world where we are, in many ways, post-Christian, and so where uh, our practice of sharing our faith used to be as simple as, hey, everybody kind of understands the basic rules, everybody agrees on the Bible as far as it's God's book, and so from that, we were kind of in this Christian space where sharing our faith was more about kind of evangelizing those who already knew something Now we're increasingly like missionaries in a space where people don't know a whole lot about what really makes our faith tick. And I think even more importantly, we are needing to be missionaries in a space that because it's post-Christian, people have gotten a taste of what I think is at times been uh, either contaminated Christianity, cultural Christianity, nationalistic Christianity, uh, kind of entitlement Christianity, whatever it is, but not an accurate and clear depiction of who Jesus was, what Jesus said, what his kingdom's all about, what he calls us to, how we're to live, And how that, in turn, can actually change the world. I think that's something that in recent years has gotten a little bit lost or a little bit muddied. Or I think even as Christianity was starting to kind of slip out of the good graces of being kind of the controlling worldview of the culture... I think there was this fear of losing that, and so we started to utilize some more earthly tools and earthly tactics to try to ensure our survival or our control or our sense of whatever morality in our culture was. And all the more what got sacrificed in that was really the authentic disposition of Jesus and how that really can bring transformation to any environment. And so we're trying to get back to that. And part of getting back to that is then embracing that we are a minority, that we are a part of kind of the dysphoria, as the uh, New Testament writers would talk about, or we're exiles, right? We're foreigners in a strange land, and we're trying to live out rules that the territory doesn't necessarily uh, comply with or appreciate. And I'm finding more and more that that's true both for those who are disbelievers. They don't always love maybe what we see in Jesus. But even for those who claim belief, they maybe are a little bit more nationalistic or they're a little bit trying to grab on to American heritage at the cost of Jesus' distinctiveness. And so all the more we have to then function as missionaries to both sides of the equation. We're missionaries to those who maybe have kind of lost a little bit of the Jesus thing, uh, even though they're claiming the name of Jesus. And we're trying to be like Jesus to those who have maybe seen a a tainted view of the Jesus thing, more of a religious view than a Christ-centered view. And they've got a nasty taste in their mouth. and, And we're trying to be missionaries to them as well. So... Man, we got a lot to do in that sense, but I'm hoping that today, instead of it being this thing where you're like, okay, here is again where we're failing. No, 
Instead, I'm hoping to start trying to, at times, point a path forward on how we can embody this thing to kind of not kind of get back to the way things used to be, because I'm not sure the way things used to be was really all that Jesus-centric, but rather to just get to an authentic space where Jesus is made much of, uh, his message is truly embodied, and people can then see Jesus on real terms in our lives. And for those of us who follow Jesus, that we will no longer hide behind these things of, hey, I'm not perfect, just forgiven, or hey, don't look at me, look at Jesus, I'm going to fail you, but Jesus is the one that succeeds. I I want us to dispense with that because the more I think about that, the more I think it's just sort of a cop-out for us because Jesus fully anticipated, yes, that we were going to fail, but that we would take his message so seriously that we would want to see ourselves crucified daily, which is what Paul says about himself. I die daily to myself, right? So that I can make much of Jesus. And clearly it worked because the early church was phenomenal at this. Like the first several hundred years of the church, man, they were just getting this nailed down and they understood kind of the marching orders of Jesus and they embodied that and it changed their world. Matter of fact, it says it flipped the world upside down in the book of Acts, right? And so that's what we want to be. So I don't want us to think like, oh, it's not possible because we're all too human. So we can't really represent Jesus well. I think that's the cop out. I think we actually can represent Jesus well if we take him seriously and on his terms, right? And so that's what I want to talk about today. And I mentioned the book of Acts, turning the world upside down, because I want us to look uniquely at the book of Acts. And from that, to get a little bit of a sense of what I'm getting at today. And it's the idea that I think for us to be successful as everyday missionaries in our culture, we need to embrace the importance of the gift of tongues for today. Yes, you heard me right. I think we need to embrace or re-embrace the power, the function, and the beauty of the gift of tongues, the outpouring of tongues on the church in Acts chapter 2. I think we need to get to that if we are going to be effective everyday missionaries. Now, at this point, some of you are listening and you're horrified. Now, others, my tongue-speaking friends, are like, finally, Matt's going to do it. He's going to say it. He's going to drive this one home. We're all supposed to be speaking in tongues. We're going full Pentecostal on this. Bada Honda, shoulda bada Yamaha, right? Like that kind of tongues. Well, well, that's not exactly where I'm going with this. Though I don't want to depart from the idea of that, that's not exactly my focus. See, sometimes what I find is that when we look at certain texts of the Bible, we can approach it from one of two angles. We can approach it from the angle of looking at every individual tree in the section, or we can look at the forest, right? So you can get all internal to the innards on ground level, and you're just moving through tree to tree to tree, or you can get up, kind of like take the the drone up a couple thousand feet and look down and be like, oh, here's a picture that I can learn from where, again, it's not so much all the particulars, but it is kind of the general spirit of a thing. And that's what I want to talk about between the book of Acts chapter 1 and the book of Acts chapter 2. Because I think there's something to be learned as far as the tempo, temperament, and a beautiful image that emerges that is directly related to tongues, but doesn't require you and I to be speaking in tongues in the way we see in the book of Acts chapter 2. So 
Let's see if I can kind of paint the picture. I'm going to paint the picture from the before the book of Acts, and then I'm going to paint it into one and two of those chapters, and then kind of push it out the other side and how I think this speaks to all of us. So if you go back to what Israel had been longing for, they were longing for the Prince of Peace, the one like David to come and reestablish the throne, set up Israel as chief among everybody else, liberate them from their captors, and that's how the world was going to be changed. So a mighty conqueror had come, his name would be Messiah. He would be the chosen one who would just basically kick butt, take names over everybody else. And Israel would get its wish of being superior and supreme in the world as they had longed for for a very long time. No wonder Jesus was such a huge disappointment because as we learned even in the podcast a couple weeks ago, Jesus was not a winner. Jesus was a loser. And Jesus intentionally comes to lose because in losing, he ultimately wins, right? So it's just such a backwards story that... Sometimes I think even as everyday missionaries, it's hard for us to embrace because he's inviting us to the same kind of tactic and it makes us feel like losers and we don't want to be losers. We want to be winners. And so we take up earthly tactics in the name of Jesus, trying to become winners by our standard, even though it's losers by his standard. And he's like, no, you guys got to get back to losing by my standard because that's how we win, right? Well, that's kind of what the disciples had to wrestle with. They they were expecting this winner mentality from a winner leader, and then the winner leader actually is a loser leader that loses, uh, yet in doing that is going to win all the more. Eventually, he's winning the nations, and he's winning Israel back in the process, and you see this in the book of Romans, like chapters 9 through 11, which are the messiest, stickiest, and hardest chapters of Romans, but what you see is the beauty of it is that this tactic that God uses ultimately reclaims all things. It's this incredible idea of redemption and reconciliation through the blood of the cross that makes peace. You see that in Colossians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20. That's a little sidebar. Let's see if I can get us a little bit back on track with what I'm getting at here. So Jesus dies, right? Everybody scatters, freaks out. They're hidden away. They're scared to death. Jesus rises. He comes to them in their fear and he's like, hey, don't be afraid. Don't sweat this. I've got a whole thing for you. You guys failed, but I got a whole thing and it's going to change the world, right? They're like, great, we want to change the world. And so he gathers them together in Jerusalem, Acts chapter one, they're in that space, they're waiting for things. And then Jesus comes to them and they ask him the question. And what their question is shows that they really haven't learned a ton just yet. Their question is, is it now finally the time when you're going to restore the glory to Israel? Are you going to finally give the kingdom, i.e. the kingdom we've wanted, we desired, our ancestors longed for, this earthly vision of a kingdom that exalts us? Are you finally going to give us that kingdom and the power to rule and reign in that kingdom? And Jesus is like, kinda, right? And this is where it gets really cool. Here's what they're asking. They're asking, are you finally going to give power to us over our enemies? Are you finally going to give us the power to bring in the kingdom as we envision? And Jesus says to them, yes, indeed, you're going to receive power. You're going to receive power from on high. And from that, you're going to go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But here's the thing. Jesus knows as he tells them about the power that while we're, they're thinking power over people, what Jesus is thinking is, I'm going to give you power for the sake of people. I'm not going to give you power to rule over them. Rather, I'm going to give you power to reach them. This is not going to be power to Lord. It's going to be power 
to love. It's going to be so potent a power that you give yourselves away versus you try to take from others to gain for yourself. See, this is where it's so different. This whole idea of the kingdom and everything he's trying to do is radically different. So the power that they're going to be granted is a power that will bless the nations. It is not a power that will subdue the nations. And see, I think this is important. This is part of that see the forest, not just the trees. Because then you go into chapter two and in chapter two, it's that tongues chapter, that weird, what do I do with it? They're all speaking in languages. There's like 120 of them. They're doing stuff. And it's easy to get lost in the debates about what's the purpose of tongues and what kind of tongues were they speaking in and what was the purpose and function of all of that? And so are we supposed to do it today? And what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And is it proof that you're saved? And there's all these debates about tongues and it kind of misses the big idea. Because the big idea is in chapter one, he says, I'm going to give you power. And in chapter two, you see the display of that power. And here's where I want to get your attention. When that happens, there's some interesting words in the original Greek language of chapter two. They speak in glossolalia, which is just means tongues, but they also speak in the dialectos of the different people groups. And so all these people are coming to Jerusalem. They're interested in God. They're already God-fearers, even though they're coming from all over the world, all over the place. Some are Jews, some are not. But they're all coming to Jerusalem for this celebration, right? And it's in that space that God unleashes power. And in that power, these people are all going out and they're practicing the ability to connect with other people in a way that is familiar to those people. So here is this simple Jewish follower of Jesus, power is thrust upon his life. He goes out and he starts talking about the mighty works of God, it says, to people who when they hear it, they're like, wow, this person is speaking not only my language, they're speaking my dialect. So if I was to modernize that for a minute, it has this sense of being home again, right? So if you grew up in the South, right, it's not just that you learned English, you learned a certain variation or a dialect of English, right? So it's y'all and how are you? And it's that tone and that twang and that thing. Or if you're from Boston, it's Boston, you know, and it's like, you know, I can't do Boston. Who am I kidding? It's a joke. All right. So, or if you go to Ireland or Scotland or whatever else looks like, they're all speaking English, but they're all speaking different dialects of English and there's different inflection and tone and the way words are said and everything else. And so all of these 120 people in the book of Acts, they go out under the power of the spirit and they're connecting with other people. They're speaking their language. And in doing that, what that's saying is we are uh, communicating with you in such a way that you are valued, that you are cared about, that I want to connect with you in your space, that I want to build a bridge to you and with you. I want to understand you and I want you to understand me. And so what tongues really is in Acts chapter two, the power of tongues in many ways is this relational bridge building. It's this peace making. It's this establishment of value from one person to another. And that becomes an archetype in my thinking. In other words, what's more important than is acts for t- or is tongues for today or not for today misses the idea that what tongues was all about was the befriending of others. It was this idea of, I want to join with you and connect with you in such a way that when you hear my voice and you hear my words, it feels like home for you. 
It feels like safe space. It feels familiar. And what it's communicating is this idea that this 120 people, they go out in tongues to connect with all these other people and their languages and dialects and sense of, of kind of familiarity of life. And it's saying like, hey, the kingdom is all about this. The kingdom is all about this idea of bringing healing and restoration and peace and value and welcoming to the world. Because that's what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1. You're going to go to the ends of the earth. And in going to the ends of the earth, you're going to go as missionaries, right? You're not going as conquerors. You're going as kind of these allies of the kingdom. You're going as um, these diplomats, right? That are going out to then forge peace. They're going out to bless the nations. They're going out to say, here's who God is and here's why God wants to know you. And God wants to know you in the context of your life. He wants to connect with you in the space that you are in. And part of what's interesting about this for the 120 that go and do this, just think in Acts chapter one, they're like, is this where we conquer? And in Acts chapter two, what they learned is, oh, this has nothing to do with conquering. This has nothing to do with promoting and pushing our way of life on all the other cultures, but rather it's how God invades all cultures in the context of their way of life and shapes them from the inside. See, that's the space of a missionary. And then for the duration of the book of Acts, it's this pushing the followers of Jesus into spaces that frankly, they don't want to go and are not comfortable and everything in them, probably in their humanness would love to rebel. And yet God is like, no, I'm going to keep opening doors and putting you in rooms with people that are uncomfortable for you. And you're going to show them the power of the kingdom that can transform everything. And then that's the story that continues to be the story, right? Like you think about it, like, like here's Stephen, he goes back into the space of his religiosity, back into the space of the Jewish elites, and he's trying to build a bridge to help them see how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything they wanted in the Old Testament. I'm sure Stephen doesn't want to go and enter that space, and for it, he actually dies. But he doesn't die cursing them. He doesn't die hating them. He doesn't die frustrated at them. He dies looking at an image of Christ. You see at the end of the story, and he's calling out to Jesus and he knows he's done the right thing by entering that space and attempting to build a bridge in the book of Acts. It doesn't always go well for those building bridges, but their faithfulness is shown and that they want to do that thing. They want to remove the walls of separation and be the peacemakers in that space and share the gift and the goodness of God to people who need to hear it desperately. And they don't lash out when it goes bad, but rather they commit themselves to Jesus, even if it looks like a dire end. But there's other stories in the book of Acts, too, of people entering into rooms with people where the space is uncomfortable, but they want to build a bridge and they want to make a connection and they want to leave their dis or they want to leave their comfort space and enter a, a an uncomfortable space for the sake of others. Like, think about this with Peter when he goes to the home of Cornelius, right? And, and Jesus is like, uh, dude, here's the deal. When you go in there, you need to eat his food. And Peter's like, whoa, that dude eats bad food. Like he eats food that's forbidden for me. And Jesus is like, ah, but see, here's the thing. It's no longer forbidden. And and if you think about the story, what's interesting about this is we go, well, sure. It means the dietary laws change in the old Testament. They couldn't do pork and all these things, but now you can no big deal. Right. It was a small, low level law. Now it wasn't a small, low level law. It was a major thing for their culture and people. But Jesus says, you know what? I want you to leave that behind and I want you to go in and I want you to meet him where he's at. And when he serves you the food that is important to him, you eat it with him because you're building the bridge. 
You're using your power, not against him, but you're using power for him to connect with him, to identify with him, and then show him who I am through you, Peter. And so Peter enters that room, eats that food, connects with Cornelius, and his family is saved. The same thing happens with Paul later in the book of Acts, right? Where he gets arrested, gets thrown in jail. Then the jailer uh, feels like he's going to get in trouble because the doors swing open and Paul's allowed to leave. And the jailer thinks like, I'm doomed. I'm going to die. And Paul's like, whoa, no, dude, we're still here, right? And so the jailer brings him into his home and Paul goes into that home and he just amalgamates into the culture because Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, I become all things to all people that I might win the more. So what does he do? He enters the space joins in in the traditions of that home and that home is saved. And this continues to be the story in Acts where God keeps putting his people in uncomfortable spaces and then says, all right, since you're there, now show my power and be a servant. Show my power and connect with people. Show my power and speak their language. Show my power and identify with their traditions, with their food, with their culture, and bring me to bear on that environment. See, in essence, all of that is the practice of tongues. I don't mean the physical glossolalia and dialectos. What I'm talking about is a disposition and a spirit where we embrace kind of this idea of when in Rome, do as the Romans do, right? But we're doing that because A, we have the power in which to do it. And B, that power is incentive for us to use it for the sake of others, not for ourselves, See, and that becomes kind of the overall tone and tenor of the book of Acts. It's the Holy Spirit and Jesus pushing people beyond their comfort zone so that they can be effective missionaries. And it doesn't matter if it's an apostle or if it's just some average Joe or Jane, they're all doing it. And this is that thing that I think gets lost a little bit today where we're more apt to want to just kind of congregate with our own, run with our own. We want to vilify one side and kind of idolize another side. We want to speak of how they're lost, they're broken, they're wrong, they're destroying culture, they're at risk of you know losing everything that, that we held dear or they're going to destroy everything that we hold dear, whatever thing we might get wrapped up into. And it misses the fact that we are empowered Not to overcome others, but rather to come alongside and serve others that are different than us, that see things in a way that we don't see them, that hold to morals or ethics or social structures that we don't hold to. Uh, What it means for us is having enough fortitude and strength to know what matters and what doesn't, and to know that it's eternity that counts and not the temporal, and to know that, you know, all the stuff of this world is one day going to pass, but what's going to matter is souls. They're the thing that's eternal. And in this, what I see consistently in the book of Acts is a group of people that are sold out to the idea that they are going to love those who oppose them. They're going to love those who persecute them. They're going to love those who are different than them because Jesus promised them, I'm giving you power. The power to do it, the power to love, the power to be peacemakers, the power to love the unlovely. I'm giving you the power to be strong when you're tempted to be weak. I'm giving you the power to stand up when you would rather kneel down. I'm giving you the power to press in when you would rather pull away. I'm giving you the power to bless them when you would rather curse them. I'm giving you power. See, that was the promise of Acts chapter 1. Now, they didn't realize in Acts chapter 1 that was going to be the nature of the power given. But by Acts 2, you see what it's all about. People 
connecting with other people in a space that is familiar, that feels like home to those people, because that is the safest place for them to come to know Jesus. And I believe for us as everyday missionaries, that's what's required of us. That we're the ones that have been given this beautiful power to bring healing and a power to bring blessing and a power to build bridges, a a power to tear down the walls of separation, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, to see God making a new humanity out of the ashes and the blood and the and the crushedness of the cross like god uses this really weird mechanism of spilling blood for others instead of spilling others blood he spills his own blood so that we can be the peacemakers that go and sow peace so that we can be empowered to go and speak in the metaphorical tongue of people where they're at So they feel like home as we share Jesus and they feel as though they are in their own space as we share Jesus with them. Because again, like I said, that is their safe space that we bring him to. And I believe if we can get this thing locked down and I believe that if we can really press into this idea of what it means to truly embrace the archetype of what that tongues was all about, I believe that's when we will be in the space to become even more helpful, joyful, and potent everyday missionaries.